For all of you who have won big parlay bets at the racetrack, try this on for size. We'll introduce you on this show to a lady who parlayed a sweaty t-shirt into $1,100 in winnings. I kid you not. Plus, do stewards just know a foul when they see one? Not exactly. We'll explain both of these topics on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. In 1666, Sir Isaac Newton, maybe you've heard of him, happened to be sitting in his mother's garden in Lincolnshire, England, and witnessed an apple falling from a tree. I'm sure you've heard that story. From that, of course, Newton developed the theory of gravity. We all sort of know today. There's actually no proof the apple hit him on the head. He was in the right place at the right time. Fast forward four centuries or so to the mid-1990s. A teenage girl named Charlize Theron, you've heard of her perhaps, was in a Los Angeles bank one afternoon, upset that the teller wouldn't cash a rent check written by Theron's mother. Theron complained loudly, and witnessing her rant was a talent agent who handed her his business card. Right place, right time. You get the idea, right? So we bring you now to October 2011. A racing fan and sometimes writer named Cindy Trejo, who lived not too far from Santa Anita Racecourse in California, was holding a garage sale at her house. So why are we telling you this? Well, we'll let her take it from here as we welcome Cindy Trejo here to win the gate. So tell us this incredible story. I was holding a garage sale and there was essentially most everything I owned because I was going to be leaving and I didn't know what my plans were going to be, but I thought moving forward, I probably would be leaving California, which has turned out to be the case. And I had quite a bit of nice things displayed on the sidewalk and into the driveway and then just racks of clothes and accessory bins. And so there was a big crowd of people largely made up of women browsing and asking, how much is this? And what do you want for this? And can I get this for a bargain? And just constant chatter and conversation. And it was painful because it was, it turned out to be painful at that moment because it was my life, my previous life that I had invested in, (laughs) if you will. And it was all leaving. And so it was just kind of the culmination of everything, seeing it all go and seeing it go for a fraction of what I paid. And in bounced this amazingly handsome young man. And he was soaking wet because he'd been out for a run and he was in runner shorts and uh, and a T-shirt. And the T-shirt caught my eye because it was a bright green, but it was the font and the name across the chest. There's a 
big sporting good company that a lot of people buy clothing from. And so you see the name everywhere, O'Neill. And I, I think it's a surfing emphasis or a, a company that produces a lot of clothing in the beach industry or the surfing industry, but it's spelled the same way that Doug O'Neill spells his name, which is with two L's and N-E-I-L-L. So immediately I thought of him when I saw the shirt and the guy said, he was a young guy and he said he didn't have any money because he was out jogging or out for his morning run, but he still wanted to browse. So I asked him what he was looking for and he said he wanted to look at books. And I had quite a number of those. And so I said, well, look, if you find something you like, let me know what it is and we'll, we'll negotiate because I really want your T-shirt. And he laughed uh, nervously and we kind of chuckled a little bit. And all of a sudden it got very quiet amongst the crowd of women because uh, <laughs> the idea that he would give it up and what that would mean became quite interesting because he was he was very tall and uh, he was very fit and he was quite good looking so he just kind of giggled about it and said well let me go see what you've got and so he ended up choosing some books because it wouldn't have been nearly as much fun to just ask him where he would bought the t-shirt and then buy one of your own well no and then you never know when someone buys or has something like that how long they've had it and whether it's, you know, still available because those things rotate, they change frequently. Besides, he was right there in front of me. It was an opportunity. And, you know, when would I have that chance again? So I think he was enjoying it a little bit, too. And when uh, what, what I think is funny is uh, I asked him, I said, great, I'll take the shirt. And he, he said, really, you just want my shirt? And I said, yeah, it's for a friend of mine. And everyone literally stopped shopping and turned to stare. And he, a lot of guys will, especially if they're wearing athletic wear or something, they'll reach behind their head and grab the back of their shirt and pull it over their head to take it off. But not this guy. <laughs> he peeled it off the front and there were his glistening abs and we just giggled, a lot of us. And he giggled and handed me the shirt, and off he trotted <laughs> to the sunset, or sunrise, if you will. And you never saw him again. I never saw him again. And I never needed to see him again, because I wanted the shirt, and I knew Doug would... I had gotten to know Doug because he would let me come to the racetrack and come to his barn and meet his horses and hang out. And I actually met Doug as a result of a commercial banking transaction I did. I, I financed a property in Santa Monica, California, which is on the coastline of California and actually happens to be, I guess, where Doug lives or has lived before. But it was his father-in-law. And I didn't know anything about Doug or horse racing. And Bob, Doug's father-in-law, at the closing luncheon said, well, you live near Santa Anita racetrack. Why don't you come over there for breakfast one morning and watch the workout, the horses work out, and I'll introduce you to my son-in-law. He's going to be famous one day. He's a really good trainer. And I said, great. And so I met him there for breakfast, talked to people and learn about racing and interview his farrier or his 
writers or as exercise writers. And he was, he's just really generous that way. He, he loves the sport so much. And if you show enthusiasm or interest in it, he wants to help you. So I wanted to give him the shirt. And so I laundered it. Well, that's good. At least you laundered it. <laughs> yeah, that would have uh, not been good otherwise. And I took it to him because he uh, had a regular spot at the Front Runner restaurant there at Santa Anita. And his family was usually with him. And other people, his clients, other trainers would stop by. He's a very social guy. He's kind of a hub. So I brought him the shirt. And the minute I showed it to him, he laughed. He got it. And I said, uh, here's your money shirt. And he hadn't, we had talked about, you know, the dream of winning the Kentucky Derby. And he is an excellent horseman. And um, I'm sure uh, his sights were set on it. Now, of course, let's remind everybody here, this was 2011. He hadn't won the Kentucky Derby yet. He had not. But, you know, we would often say to him playfully, well, your money, Doug, your money. And so when I saw that shirt with the currency font on it, you know, that was the emphasis, your money. And here and here it is. You can wear it. And he got a big kick out of it. He really enjoyed it. And he was with his very dear friend, uh, Mark Verge. They've been friends since childhood, and they were both giggling about it. So... Somebody at the table said, look, uh, the horse St. Cindy <laughs> is running in this $10,000 claiming race. Uh, it was the fifth race of the day, and you should play it because you got the shirt for Doug. And I said, oh, let me see the program, and just laughing. And there, right there in that bold print that they have in, in the program was, a horse called the Gorgeous Guma. And I laughed and said, oh, no, that's the winner right there. Because that guy that peeled off the shirt was gorgeous. And we all laughed. And so Dennis, uh, Doug's brother, who just is quite a talented horseman in so many ways. Incredible bloodstock agent. Fabulous. And just, uh, I think, Savant-like is a great description for Dennis, but he he likes to look at the sheets. And I didn't know what those were. I just knew that people looked at them. You know, I think I've seen them once or twice, and they look like boxes on a page with a few things printed on them. I have no idea what they say or why they say it. But Dennis said, hey, your gorgeous Guma's got a shot here. So, you know, Doug just handed me 50 bucks and said if the skinny guy or the skinny man, I think is what what they call him, because he's very thin. The skinny man says, go for the guma, then I'd I'd do it. And and so, uh, you know, I thought about it for a minute and Doug and Mark went off to go do their jobs and I didn't. And the, the Guma won. Top of the lane now and Judge Joan the one to beat. Judge Joan strikes the front and kicks for home. Now here's gorgeous Guma coming with a run on the inside. Iridescent red. Roman Charity running on as well. They come for home and now suddenly Judge Joan gets swamped on the inside. Gorgeous Guma outside. Iridescent red. Roman Charity but gorgeous Guma to score. And gorgeous Guma in an upset. Gorgeous Guma wins it clear in the end. It was incredible. It was 
so much fun. And I'm not sure that the horse went on to do great things, but I, I did hear that he is a stud and that there are other, uh, that there are young horses of his running now. So I don't know anything about them, but I know that cycle continues. Well, this is also an example that we in the journalism business understand all too well, is that you go in with a game plan for a story, but you never know where the story will take you once you start it. (laughs) It sounds like that's kind of what happened to you. Yeah, well, that's kind of been my experience with the racetrack, and I think that's why I like it so much, is there's a plan, but it never comes out that way. It's always something else. So we're talking to Cindy Trejo, a heck of a racing fan and a heck of a storyteller here on In the Gate. So Gorgeous Guma won. How much did you win? It was almost $1,200. For a $50 bet? Yes. So it was a nice day at the racetrack when something like that happened. So how did you feel when Team O'Neill won the Kentucky Derby just a few months after that? I was elated. I mean, it's so much fun to be near people when they have the opportunity to achieve something like that. Cause that's just a dream that every, everyone who carries a license certainly in horse racing has from the onset, whether it's a jockey or a trainer or an owner to win the Kentucky Derby. And so when you meet nice people who have a lot of fun doing what they're doing, but they do it so well that they accomplish that it's super, super wonderful, and it's very hopeful, I think, in a lot of ways for people. So that's that's why I like racing. Now, you no longer live in Southern California, hence the garage <laughs> sale that started this story. Do you keep in touch with anyone from Team O'Neill? Oh, yeah, I sure do. And, you know, fortunately, Facebook and social media allow that Twitter and allow that to happen very easily. Well, do you know if he still has the T-shirt? I don't. I don't know that. And, I, you know, he's a busy, busy guy, but it's certainly on my list of questions that I'll ask him when I do have a chance to talk to him. I'm hoping to, because I do write thoroughbred stories, and I write stories about people and horses and situations like this that are fun. And I have interviewed him before, and I hope to do it again. So... Yeah, it's on my list. Well, this is one of the coolest stories we've had on the six-plus years we've been doing this show. Cindy Trejo, thank you so, so much. This is fantastic. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, you've heard the phrase, I can't define it, but I'll know it when I see it. How does that apply when a steward has to judge whether to disqualify a horse for interference? Don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. Former Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, in an opinion on a famous case involving pornography, couldn't define exactly what pornography was, but wrote, I know it when I see it. All right, settle down. We're not talking about pornography on this show, but we are talking about judging a horse race when there's interference between two or more horses. Do stewards just know a foul when they see one? Not exactly. There are criteria involved in judging a race, and they differ depending on what country you're in. 
It was one of the topics discussed at this year's annual Jockey Club Roundtable Conference involving stewards, the referees of horse racing, and how they decide whether to take a horse down for interference during a race. The example shown at the conference involved a horse, we'll call him Horse A, in the stretch, moving sharply from the center of the track toward the inside, where he bumps with a horse on the rail, we'll call him Horse B. Horse A, the one that moved over, crossed the finish line first by a half length. So, should Horse A be taken down? And if so, where should he be placed? The speaker at the conference said that there are two different ways to approach the topic, and it varies by country. In countries labeled Category 2, which includes the United States, stewards can disqualify a horse if the foul altered the finish of the race. It wouldn't matter if the foul was intentional, accidental, or the result of careless riding. Now in Category 1, which includes most of Europe, stewards will only adjust the order of finish if a horse improves his position because of the interference. Interesting. Let's make sense of that a little bit by talking with an actual steward here in North America. We welcome in for the first time to In the Gate, Ralph D'Amico, the chief steward for the Iowa Racing Commission. Thanks so much for being here. What do you make of the two different approaches to judging a would-be adjustment of a race's finish? Well, I'm not familiar how they do it in other countries, so I can only speak to how we do it here in the States and more specifically how we do it here in Iowa because even in this country, a lot of the uh, the rules and interpretation of those rules change. So to give you an example, here in Iowa, the stewards here have the discretion to disqualify a horse if if they believe that that horse's interference, intimidation, or impeding of another horse may have caused that horse a placing. Some jurisdictions... Um, I believe just consider a foul as a foul, and the horse should be disqualified. So even in this country, between Class 1 and Class 2s in different areas, even in this country, it, it differs in the rules of each jurisdiction. So I can only speak to ours. Well, why would there be differences in this country if the edict for Category 2 means that interference leads to any altering of the race's finish, regardless of whether the offending horse improves his position or not? Well, it's, it's my understanding, going back years ago, and I believe the track was Hialeah, a horse called Dr. Fager, win a race by the length of the stretch, and he interfered with the horse leaving the gate, and the the rule at that time was a foul is a foul, and the horse needs to be disqualified. It has to be disqualified. So it's my understanding that Dr. Fager was disqualified, and throughout the years, situations like that has led to some believing that a horse should only be disqualified if the stewards believe that it actually interfered with the finish of the race. So, I mean, I don't. I mean, I can only speak to what I know, and that's basically why I heard that some of the changes taking place. Well, another example like that would be when Bayern won the 2014 Breeders' Cup Classic after slamming shared belief in California Chrome right out of the gate, and the decision was allowed to stand. What kind of training do you and other stewards in Iowa get to prepare you to judge a situation like that? Well, the stewards in Iowa are accredited through, um, you know, the stewards accreditation program. 
we have rope and we have, you know, we go to the ARCI and, and the model rules committee and all that. A lot of stewards in the stand are ex-jockeys. Some of them have been in the industry, you know, for quite a long time, if not their entire life. Some are ex-owners or ex-trainers. Um, usually the people you find in the stand have some experience in the industry in one capacity or another. Now, how often do you go through continuing training as a steward? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> Every day. No, but, you know... We, we go to the Stewards Accreditation Program that's held every two years in various parts of the country. Does this sort of topic come up, I would imagine? It does. Uh, many topics come up. I mean, but to be a certified steward, you have to meet certain criteria, and then I know you, you take a course that lasts about a week long, and you cover various subjects such as law, medication, uh, rules and regulation, you know, stuff like that. So you take a course for, you know, and you study for about a week and then you take a test. It's three parts, I believe. There's a written exam which covers uh, what I mentioned. There's film analysis and then there's an oral exam on various questions that the panel may come up with, hypothetical situations or situations that did happen and they were, you know, and they'll run them by you. So it's an extensive program and after you pass that, you you go to the continuing ed Uh, education every two years. Ralph D'Amico, the Chief State Steward for the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission, is with us here on In the Gate. So when a situation comes up like an interference call, how often do you have to remind yourself consciously what the criteria are for making such a ruling? Well, I don't think you have to remind yourself. If you've been at it long enough, it's, you know, to me it's straightforward. I don't look at, if there's an inquiry or a claim of foul, you know, I'm looking at the race, I'm looking at the specific incident, I'm looking for a reason not to disqualify a horse. I'm not looking for a reason to disqualify, you know, I'm looking for, you know, interference or was it intentional, you know, I'm basically looking at the situation and I'm looking for a reason not to disqualify the horse. I'm looking for a reason to give the jockey the benefit of the doubt, but if It boils down to if I believe, regardless of the jockey's actions or inaction, believe if a horse or a jockey interfered with another horse or impeded or intimidated another horse to where it cost that horse or another horse a placing, then I, then I, I feel it's in the best interest of everyone, the public and, you know, the owners and the trainers to disqualify the horse. But I, I actually look for a reason not to. Now, this year, our American audience got to see something that I know I've never seen before. During the Royal Ascot meeting in England, a steward's inquiry was shown on live TV. There were cameras in the steward's room, and the jockeys of the horses involved didn't call in by phone from trackside as they would do here. They went into the steward's room and answered questions face-to-face, and live TV cameras were right there in the room with them so we could see the inquiry. What do you think about something like that here? Well, that's been brought up, not having jockeys actually come into the steward's stand and, and, you know, after the race face-to-face. But there's been quite a bit of discussion in the steward's education courses throughout the years to be more transparent, which I am all for. Some of those have been to 
you know, show cameras in the steward stand, showing the stewards reviewing the, the tape of the race or the incident, and we do have that here at Prairie Meadows. During our inquiries or claim of files, we do have a camera in the steward stand that shows the Board of Stewards reviewing the, the race film. There's no audio or anything like that. So, you know, we are doing taking that step. There has been talk about having the steward's name put on the tote board and to show the public how the stewards actually voted it, whether or not to disqualify a horse or not. It's been topics. I don't know how far it's gotten or don't know how much support there is for that. But having the stewards and their decisions or the stewards stand be more transparent in their decisions and why they made those decisions, I think it's for the better of racing. Well, I guess it would depend on whether or not you could afford a bodyguard. <laughs> that would probably be true in a lot of cases. It would be. And you might have to turn the audio the audio off on a few of those. Uh, it gets a little bit heated sometimes. And, you know, and, and being, you know, in the jockeys, I've come from that being in the heat of battle. And, you know, uh, tempers run high. You know, you're, you're putting your life at risk. And sometimes, you know, you see your life flash before you. But oftentimes, you know, when there's an inquiry and you ask a job what happened or he's trying to tell you, he, he tells you how he almost widowed his, widowed his wife and his life flashed behind him and in front of him. And, you know, he should be put up. That horse should be disqualified. And the next day, he come in and he says, you know, well, Judge, it really wasn't that bad. He was doing all he could. So you get, you got to take it as a, you know, being in the heat of the moment, you take what you see. And, you know, we do interview the jocks after the race, but it's to me it's more of what the film shows. Yeah, I guess not everybody in the heat of the moment is as honest as the late, great Eddie Arcaro was when the New York stewards asked him why he ran Vincent Nodars's horse into the rail, and he said, I was trying to kill him, and he wound up suspended for a year. <laughs> Yeah, and they relied quite a bit on patrol judges at that time, not so much the cameras. But, you know, it's it's competitive out there. But, I mean, I, I can truly say that as, for as competitive as it is, you know, once you get back in the room, you know, the main the main thing is that the, they do try to protect themselves out there and each other quite a bit because it only takes a fraction of a clipping of the heels or, you know, a uh, horse stumbling uh, to cause a serious accident. And, and I, the jocks all know that, and they want, and we, we preach that, we want the jocks taking care of each other as they want them to take care of each other. So if a jock's coming up the rail into the 3 H pole, he has to rely on that jock on the outside giving him a, a fair shot. One thing you mentioned earlier uh, raised an eyebrow. You know, the lady who spoke at the Jockey Club Roundtable is a coordinator for the Racing Officials Accreditation Program, and their stated goal is to create uniformity across the country in judging races. Do you think there's any chance of that happening? It seems like you were saying there were still quite a bit of difference in how stewards judge from one territory to another. Well, I think a lot of it is based on the rules. You know, like I like I stated earlier, the Board of Stewards here in Iowa have the discretion upon disqualification to determine if we feel, in our opinion, that the interference or the intimidation cost a horse a placing. Some stewards' hands are tied. Their jurisdiction may say that if a horse commits a foul, he is to be disqualified. 
So if the horse wins by the by ten the lengths or the length of the stretch, and and he actually committed a foul, the stewards really don't have a choice in it. You know, so a lot of the uniformity is should come through the rules. Now a lot of it comes in the uh, the quality of stewards and their background on uh, the stewards that you have in the stand. So we're at least saying that some of the situation relates to states' rules, which is yet another reason why the sport will never be the single voice (laughs) that a lot of people think it should be, since it's all left to the states. Well, Ralph D'Amico, thank you so much. Anytime. It was a pleasure. Our thanks again to Ralph D'Amico and to Cindy Trejo. Before the onset of Hurricane Irma, a Florida court determined that a quarter-horse race that happened three years ago at Hamilton Downs was valid. What is Hamilton Downs, you ask? Near the Georgia border, it's a cardroom casino that has a paramutual license. Therefore, it must hold races to be allowed to keep its casino space. The races had just two horses each, and the government's complaint was that one person owned both horses in the race. The court ruled that ownership didn't matter, that a legal race had happened, according to rules the government conceived. Yet in the ruling was an account by an administrative law judge that said the races had to be seen to be believed. I've been to these races at Gretna, Oxford Downs, and Hialeah, and horse ownership is the least of the concerns. Allowing these unsavory races could eventually lead to an entire racing industry crash and burn. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at The Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.